again, we're glad you're here at Grace. Thanks for coming. We're one church meeting in two locations. And, and remember, church, it's not about sitting in a building. It's about choosing to be a part of a movement, and that movement is to follow Christ. And that's exactly what we're doing. Well, I trust everybody's rested up with that extra hour of sleep, right? I, I got to tell you, the extra hour of sleep, you know, I had that extra hour. I'm more behind this morning. That seems like I normally am. Did that happen to anybody? Yeah, I don't know how that could possibly happen, but it seems to have happened for me. But anyway, we're, we're glad that you're here. We're in a brand new series this Sunday called Outlaws, and it follows the book of Daniel, Outlaws, Faith-Inspired Defiance. And uh, we can learn a lot from Daniel. Basically, here's a, a young man that was ripped from his home and his culture and put somewhere else, and, and he had to deal with all that. And it's the same for us in that we live in an ever-changing world, an ever-changing culture that we're constantly trying to adapt to, but also to try to figure out where we should draw the lines. And I think we can learn a lot from Daniel in this regard. There's a little saying uh, that Christians use. It sounds like this. It goes, uh, we want to, uh, as believers, we are in the world but we are not of the world. All right, and so if you think about that, we can understand what the phrase means, but beyond that, it's a little bit more difficult to understand how do you apply that in every situation, every day of your life. And I think this is an area where Daniel can help us as we look to see how he reacted to the things that happened in his life. I mean... How do we live out being in the world and not of it? How do you do that? I know uh, my mom became a believer when I was a child, and then I grew. we moved around a little bit, but I landed in a, a Baptist Bible Fellowship church. That's where I believe I, I really matured the most a, as a believer, and that's when I was in high school and college. But that, the church there had a lot of stances um, for example, generally, it was kind of frowned on to go to movies. Um, dancing was a big one that, that you weren't supposed to do. And uh, I mean, there was no slow dancing, no swing dancing, no square dancing, no dancing. As a matter of fact, the church was also against premarital sex because it could lead to dancing. I mean, it was just, you know, dancing was, was bad. And... Uh, The, the point is, how do you figure out what's okay and what's not okay? You know, what, what movies should I watch? What music should I listen to? And by the way, there's no such thing as Christian music. There is only Christian lyrics. You know, it's the lyrics, it's the message that makes the difference. Not the musical part of a song. It's all about what the song is saying. And, and so we're, we try to figure out, well, how do I make these decisions? And then we complicate it by, then it's not only for ourselves, but how do I lead my family? How, how do I lead my children in, in making these decisions and in, in doing what's right? How protective of my kids should I be? And so we're, we're trying to, to figure all this out. I remember... When I had decided to first go to Bible college after I graduated from a CSU, a Colorado State in Pueblo, 
And I, I went to a, a, a Bible college for just one year in Missouri. And they had a form to fill out. And I was asked all these questions. I wasn't doing real great on that. I, I remember they were asking me about, you know, do you go to movies and, and do you dance and do you do these things? And, and I was checking those off. And one of the questions was even, do you play cards? Do you play playing cards? Cards. I remember, didn't really get that. I remember writing on the, this, this is the application for me to go to school. I remember writing, of course. You know, I'm thinking, is this a trick question or what are we doing here? I didn't really get it. And then later I found out some believers had a standard against uh, playing cards and, you know, just all this stuff. I remember being in high school and, and uh, my youth pastor found out, that, you know, he knew that sometimes I went to dance. He's a great guy and he taught me a lot. I'll give you an example of this. So we started talking about dancing. And the one thing I got from my church, because it was a good church, was that we, we go by the Bible. If it's in the Bible, you know, the Bible's what counts. We put God's word first. And so I was asking him, well, where in the Bible are we getting this, the whole dancing thing? And, and really, it comes down to sensuality. But he, he, he kind of challenged me with something. He said, well, Kevin, next time you go, I want you just to ask yourself a question. While you're there, and, and as you're looking at what's going on, just ask yourself the question, would Jesus be here doing this? And I remember thinking, okay, yeah, that, that sounds fair. I remember like it was yesterday, I'm standing, I'm a senior in high school, I'm standing uh, there at, at a dance with some of my friends, and, and they're in front of me dancing and everything, and, and then that thought hit me. And at that time that the thought hit me, a friend of mine who, who was with a, a girl that he brought to the dance, they were in front of me doing the lewdest dance I had ever seen in my life, and I was like, Wow! Well played, youth pastor. I mean, man, I was like, whoa, no, no way is Jesus here. Again, it, it's sensuality, not the dancing. We, and so as believers, we, we're trying to figure out, well, what's okay and what's not okay? Where do we cross the line? Where do we draw the lines? All that stuff as a believer, it's very important, and we need to figure that out. And it's important. Daniel knew how to be in the world and not of the world. It's very interesting to check out his life. Basically, just in the first two chapters, here's what we're going to learn from Daniel. Number one, that if we want to know how to be in the world and not of the world, first thing is we need to remember that God's in control. Even when culture changes, even in change or even chaos, God is in control, first thing. Second thing, we need to obey God even if that means defying those in authority over us or defying what's expected in our culture. We need to obey God. Obey God's laws before man's God's laws. Number three, and we can do that if we trust God. Trust God. He's got a plan. No matter what's happening, it's safe. It's right to trust God. And if we do those things... God will use us to impact our culture just like he used Daniel to impact his. So as we get started in, in the first book of Dan, in the first chapter of Daniel, if you want to find that, it's in the Old Testament. A lot of you aren't used to being in the Old Testament that much. Page 881, if you want to use uh, one of the Bibles in the, the rack in front of you. But as you're turning there, let me give you that 
kind of the context of what's going on. The nation of Israel reached its peak under, the king, under kings David and Solomon. And then the nation started to decline because the people kept going after foreign gods. They kept being not faithful to God. And as this happened, uh, they became weaker and weaker. Eventually, the kingdom of Israel separated into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom called Israel and the southern kingdom then was called Judah. Only two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. And the first thing is the northern kingdom didn't have any kings that followed God. And they were the first to be wiped out and dispersed. And now in Daniel's time, the southern kingdom still stands and they have Jerusalem as their capital. You've got to understand where Israel is. And I believe Israel is where it is on the map for a reason. It's the crossroads of the world. Africa, Asia, Europe, it all comes together right there in the Middle East. And so, because of that, all the rulers that were seeking world domination were crisscrossing through the nation of Israel. Israel had already, by this time, they had seen the Assyrians come and go, and then the Egyptians had power, and now that's waning. And, and there's another thing going on. Even the southern kingdom now is continuing to fall away from God, and it's actually been prophesied that God will judge Judah, the nation of Judah, the southern kingdom, because they're no longer following God. And with, along with that prophecy enters Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian empire, and they roll across the known world. They attack the southern kingdom, they sack Jerusalem, and, and they even plunder the temple of God inside Jerusalem, and, and that's the context of what's happening. Now, I got to tell you, Daniel lived in a real world. And it was a world where he had a job that he didn't want, that he was forced to take. He had co-workers that would undercut him, take credit for something that he did, would try to sabotage him at every turn. He lived in a culture that was completely pagan and hostile to his faith. Yet, Daniel was able to remain true to God because, first of all, he remembered that God is in control even if our world is changing or even if it's in chaos. Let's pick it up in Daniel chapter 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. That's Nebuchadnezzar's taking this stuff from the temple. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles. Youths, he's, so he's looking for these people, youths in whom no defect, in whom there was no defect, who were good looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had the ability for serving the king's court. And he ordered him, this official, to teach them the literature of and language of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed for them daily 
a daily ration from the king's choice food and from the wine which he drank, and appointed that they should be educated three years, at the end of which they were to enter the king's personal service. Now among them from the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Then the commander of the officials assigned, them new, assigned new names to them. And to Daniel he assigned the name Belteshazzar, and to Hananiah, Shadrach, and to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. So you see what's happened? They come in, they take over Jerusalem, they, they rob the temple, take the artifacts back, and then Nebuchadnezzar says, hey, I want the best and the brightest young people from Israel, and I want, let's bring them, and then enter them into the royal academy, and they can serve us. And basically, Babylon, they valued physical attraction, intelligence, and youth. I mean, could you imagine living in a world like that? I mean, that's what they were kind of after. And, uh, and so Daniel was one of these. And so he's taken w- with three of his friends into captivity, and there could have been others, and there were others from other countries as well, and they're all taken and put into the Royal Academy. And so that's kind of what's going on. And, and so Daniel here, his life is turned upside down. The text is basically telling us he's a good-looking guy. He's well-connected. He had the high SAT scores. I mean, his whole life's in front of him. Everything's good. And then all of a sudden, it's turned on its head, and he's shipped off to serve a new pagan king. Their Hebrew names, actually all three Hebrew names, all four Hebrew names of these four young men, all were in reference to God. And the names they were given to replace those names, were all in reference to pagan gods. So they're named after, they're they're renamed, instead of the one true God, they're named after pagan gods, and all this is happening to them. And uh, all of Israel's in chaos. Daniel is, is facing all this uncertainty, ripped from his home, his family, new name, new clothes, new culture, new everything. And he's supposed to learn everything, studying the literature and language of the Chaldeans. But here's the thing, God, Daniel knows that God is in control. Daniel never loses sight of that. We can see that by his actions and what he does next, that he gets, even though he probably doesn't understand why God's doing this, although it was prophesied, he, he knew the country had been leaning, but Daniel didn't seem to be going against God, and all these bad things are happening to Daniel, and the question is, how will he react? Well, number one, he remembers that God's in control, and we know that because of his following actions. And the next thing that he does is Daniel obeys God even if it meant defying the king, the authority that's set over him. Just like we, we should obey God even if it means of being in defiance to authority over us or the culture around us or the expectations of our culture. Obey God first. And that's exactly what Daniel did. We'll pick it up where we left off in verse 8. But Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. So he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. So Daniel's saying, nope, drawing a line here. So he talks to the guy in charge of him, very respectfully, I'm sure, to, say, to come up with a plan. 
And now God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials. And the commander of the officials said to Daniel, I'm af- so, hey, will you let us not eat this food? And the guy says, well, I'm afraid of my lord the king who's appointed your food and your drink. For why should he see your faces looking more haggard than the youths are your own age? Then you would make me forfeit my head to the king. But Daniel said to the overseer, whom the commander of the officials had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, he says, please test your servants for ten days and let us be given some vegetables to eat and water to drink. All right, so what happened is here is Daniel, it's kind of interesting because Daniel's saying, look, all this stuff has happened. He's saying, hey, we can't do the food. And, uh, and so he talks to the guy to say, let us, let us eat something else. But it's actually the king that decided that. And, and one thing I want us to see is Daniel defies the king. I, I want you to get something because sometimes I think we jump in as Christians and we say, yeah, Christians, we're countercultural, we're, we're defiant and all this stuff. And sometimes we take that too far. And here's what I mean by that. Daniel submitted to the, his new pagan king in all these areas except for one area. And it's the exact same thing that Joseph did earlier when he was uh, sold into slavery in Egypt. He submitted. The first thing I want us to get before we get this issue of defiance is that we need to understand that God calls us to submit to the authorities over us. For example, if you have a boss and you're being paid to do a job, God's telling us as Christians we should submit to that, that boss. Even if he's a pagan, even if he's bad news, doesn't treat us fairly, whatever, we should submit to him. If, if, of course, we have the freedom to change jobs. That's okay too. But we should submit to the authorities that God has placed over us, even ungodly authorities. But there's an exception When the authority in our lives, whether it's our boss or the law or the government, if they tell us to do something that's in direct confrontation or direct violation of of God's word, then that's where we use this principle where we obey God rather than men. We get that phrase, if you'll remember, in Acts chapter 5 where the disciples are beaten and everything. Stop preaching the name of Jesus. Will you tell me, should I obey God or men? And so that's the principle that kicks in. But I want to point out, they rip Daniel from his home. They give him a pagan name. They, They change his clothes, his culture, everything about him. He's studying their religion, their language. He doesn't object to any of this. He does not reject. He does not defy any of this. And then when it comes to food, kind of weird, when it comes to food, he says, no way, I'm drawing the line. It's kind of like the guys on staff when we go out for staff lunch. I mean, food's a big deal. So all this stuff's happening. Food, nope, drawing the line. Why? Because for, and, and then the other why is, this is the best food in the country. This is the king's food, what the king eats. This is the king's wine, what the king drinks. And what happens is Daniel says, no, uh, let me try to you know, figure out a way. Uh, we want an exception here. We can't do this because that was in direct violation 
of the Old Testament kosher laws that existed at that time in order to keep Israel separate as a nation and wholly devoted to following God. And so he says, no, that's a violation of the Old Testament dietary law that I have to follow, Daniel's saying. And so he draws the line that he's going to defy the king on this at great risk. Now, he, I'm sure he does it. He comes very respectfully, but he's determined in his heart. He's not doing this. Even if it means death, I think he's ready to go. He's going to die on the hill. He's gonna, and he's got three friends backing him up. And so that's, that's how this is all playing out. And, and in the same kind of situation, that's the way we live a lot of our lives. Usually not so drastic. But we face choices and dilemmas every day that we have to figure out how does God want me to respond to this situation. Maybe I didn't think I would be here or maybe I'm disappointed or, or maybe, you know, it doesn't matter. Whatever place you find yourself and then you're confronted with a choice that our culture hands you and, and we have to make the decision. And, and basically, it comes down, we can make different decisions, but we cannot compromise on God's commands. That's the point. It's kind of weird because in the culture we're living in, it's a little schizophrenic toward Christians. I mean, on one hand, you know, government officials like the president place their hand on the Bible and take the oath of office, the Bible... On the other hand, a, a high school guidance counselor could not open the Bible to give somebody some advice at school. You know, it's kind of weird that way. Sometimes our culture is hostile to our faith. And then we, we have decisions to make at that point. And that decision should always be ruled by the first principle is that we obey God before men. And so we kind of take that to the bank. And, you know, by the way, speaking of, of government, you know, it's almost time to vote, right? And Christians should vote. It's, it's kind of interesting because our culture kind of tells Christians they should keep quiet. Especially on their exclusive claims about Christ. But culture tells Christians to keep quiet. And then culture's always shouting out separation of church and state. We're the people too, right? You know, we are part of the people. And by the way, that whole idea of separation of church and state was not that government, it was not to keep us interfering with government. That whole idea was to keep government from interfering with the church, right? That was the whole point, right? I mean, so it's kind of... Kind of, yeah, that, that's okay to clap to. Yeah, that's, that's just the truth. That's our history. But that gets so turned in our culture. It's kind of like in our culture, you have a choice to either be a wimp. You know, they, there's this pressure to be a wimp, don't say anything. Or, or to be kind of a nut case. And that is, you know, they portray Christians as, yeah, I'm a Christian, but I, but I don't say anything to anybody. I'm just this quiet, milk toast, nice person. 
Or on the other hand, if I do say something, then I'm a nut carrying a sign saying God hates fill in the blank, which is not true. It's the middle ground that, you know, culture has left out for Christianity that, that we need to take. But what I'm saying is we have this dilemma all the time and we need to obey God before we obey men. There's, there's a little thing that, that I think this principle kicks in. See, it's, a lot, it's easy for us as Christians to be quiet all the time. Sometimes when people tell us things, even other Christians, especially other Christians in this example... Other Christians will come and they'll tell us about their problems or whatever, and then we'll, we'll, tr- we'll try to respond to them in love. That's what I tell the staff, because this happens all the time. But a lot of times, what they're telling us, they're not actually doing right. So, so here's the rule that, that I give our staff. Love first, lead second, but always do both. Love first, lead second, Always do both. What that means is don't just sympathize with somebody when they're doing the wrong thing. Sympathize with them, help them, but then lead them, point them the truth. It's grace, that's love, and truth, that's leading. Grace and love, but always both. Don't, don't love without leading. Love and lead. Anyway, I'm getting off the track here. But anyway, the point is we have these decisions that we need to make when we're faced with issues all the time. Sometimes they're not our issues. Sometimes they're other people's issues. We need to, first of all, obey. Let's pick it up, pick it up in verse 17. As for these four youths, that's Daniel and his three friends, God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom And Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. What's happened here is he says, hey, test us for 10 days. The guy does test them for 10 days. He just gives them vegetables and water. And all of a sudden, these four teenagers look better than the other teenagers. God just kind of did that. And then not only that, and so they pass the test. So the guy for the next three years lets them have just vegetables and water. They don't eat from the king's table. Their choice. And the official's okay with it because they're looking good. And then, not only does God grant them that, their physical appearance, but also he grants them kind of an intellectual ability. So, verse continues in 18. Then at the end of the days, which the king has specified presenting them, the three years, the commander of the officials presented them before Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and out of them all, not one was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's personal service. As for every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king consulted them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and conjurers who were in all his realm. So it all works out for Daniel. He graduates from the school, and he and his three buddies are at the top of the class. And I believe this is something that God's done for them because they chose to obey even if it meant defying the king which was major risky business at that time. And so that's what happens. They obey God, and then they get through that. You see, with faced with choices in our culture as believers, it's kind of like we have three options. Some things in our culture are neutral. It's not an attack on our faith. And those things in our culture, first option is we can just receive it. We just do it. It's okay. It doesn't matter. It's a neutral thing. It's not against God. It's not against God's principles. So first, 
first possible choice, first option is we receive it. The second thing is some things are clearly against God's principles. Then we need to reject it. We can receive it, but if it's against God's principles, we reject it. Pornography, racism, adultery, we reject these things. Why? Clearly against God's word. We say, no, that's not for me. I cannot be a part of that. We don't have to think about it. We got it. We can receive neutral things. We reject things that the Bible says is wrong for our lives. But there's a third option. comes up once in a while. We can redeem it. And that is where we take something that's meant for evil and somehow we have a way or God gives us a way to turn it on its head and really use it for good. Best example of that is Paul at Athens. If you'll remember, he's in this place where these all these um, statues to pagan gods. And he wants to teach them about the one true God. And then there's this pedestal and it's to the unknown God. And so he uses this platform which is really kind of an empty idol, which is evil, because idols are wrong. But he uses this to say, hey, let me tell you about the one true God. Now, that, that pedestal was not dedicated to Yahweh. It's just he uses that to say, hey, let me use this as a bridge. And so he used something that was meant for evil, idol worship, and he turns it around and he uses it for good. So sometimes we can do that. So three choices, three options. We can receive it if it's neutral to our faith. We reject it if it's against our faith, faith, and once in a while, we can redeem it. If we obey God, even if it means defying authority, even if it means defying our culture, our culture's expectations, even if it means that our friends kind of freak out and look at us like we're nuts, it's because we trust God. That's the third thing. It's because we have decided to trust God. Most important decision that we'll ever make. We just need to trust God. What happens in the rest of the story, basically in chapter 2 of Daniel. So here they are. They graduated. Things are good. They're in the king's service. The next thing that happens in the next chapter of Daniel, and this is how God uses these things that Daniel's displayed to impact the culture. Next thing that happens is the king has a dream. And he, he is troubled by the dream. And somehow he, ha- he gets... That this dream is super important. That he needs to get what this dream is all about. And so he, his first reaction is to go to the wise men of his realm. He has a whole class of people who he pays to serve him in this area. And find out and have them find out from the gods what the dream means. But he also knows sometimes these guys fudge a little bit. And he's decided, you know, if gods, if the gods can tell us what the interpretation of a dream is, then the gods should be able to tell us what the dream is. So he decides, I'm not going to tell the wise men what the dream is. I'm going to call them together and I'm going to ask for them to tell me the dream and tell me the interpretation. Then if they tell me the dream, because I haven't told them the dream, then I'll know when they tell me the interpretation that they're spot on. So he does this. Well, you can imagine how the wise men of Babylon responded to that request. They were like, king, nobody can do this. Tell us the dream and we'll tell you what it means. And he's like, no, I'm not telling you the dream. If the gods can tell you what it means, they can tell you what the dream was. And so they're like, they they say to King Nebuchadnezzar, they say, king, nobody in all of human history 
No king has asked his wise men to do such a thing. Just give us the dream and we'll tell you what it means. And he says no and he becomes enraged and he decides they're all worthless. He's going to kill the whole class of wise men. He's going to wipe all the wise men out in Babylon. He's going to kill them all. That's what happens when you cross the king. And that's where Daniel comes to play. Daniel is in this class of wise men now. He's graduated. He's serving the king. He's one of the people, him and his three friends from Israel, they're going to be killed too. When Daniel hears about it, he goes into the king and he asks for time. Hey, give me some time. Give me till tomorrow. And I will give you this interpretation. I'll, I'll figure this out. And then he goes to his three friends and he says, we're in trouble. We're all about to be killed. We need to ask God to give us the answer, what the dream was and what it means. And so they start praying. And they pray and they pray. And then a night passes and then it's God reveals to Daniel what the dream was and what it means. And then Daniel goes to his official and he says, hey, take me to the king. I've got it. And that's kind of where we pick it up next in verse, chapter 2, verse 26. So he comes in, and the king said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen and its interpretation? He's saying, if you don't have them both, you're dying. You know, kind of a deal. And then Daniel, great answer. Check out this answer. Daniel answered before the king and said, As for the mystery about which the king has inquired, neither wise men conjurers, magicians, nor diviners are enabled to declare it to the king. However, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He's talking about the one true God. Who reveals mysteries and has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the latter days. This was your dream and the visions in your mind while on your bed. And then he just goes into it. So he's there before Nebuchadnezzar. And he says, hey, nobody can answer this, but there's a God in heaven who can. And the God in heaven wanted you, king, to know what was going to happen in the future. And you are laying on your bed, and here's what happened, king. You're laying there, and you started thinking about the future and what would happen. And then you had this dream, and the dream was about a statue. And it was a statue of a man, and the head of the statue was solid gold. And the chest and the arms of the statue were silver. And the, the midsection and the thighs of the statue were bronze. And the legs of the statue were iron. And the feet of the statue were iron mixed with clay. Kind of odd. And he says, that's what you saw. And then he starts interpreting what the dream meant. He said, the golden head, King Nebuchadnezzar, that represents you, the kingdom of Babylon. And then, but after you, there will be successive world-dominating kingdoms that really are more and more inferior as they go. And then we know from history we can line these up, that the, the next kingdom, the silver kingdom, chest and arms, that relates to Medo-Persia, which is the next kingdom that takes over. The kingdom of, of the midsection and the thighs, the bronze kingdom, that's Alexander the Great and Greece. And, and that's even identified in the Bible. And then the legs are Rome. Now, 
Rome became the dominating power, was the dominating power just before the time of Christ. But then after Rome, and all these kingdoms were kingdoms that controlled Israel. But after Rome, the legs, we know from history that Israel ceased to be a nation, 70 AD. Shortly after the time of Christ, Israel's wiped out and now there's no Israel. But, and then there's a break in this statue. This is what, and then we know this last kingdom, the ten toes, mixed iron and clay mixed, we know that's still future and wouldn't happen until after the kingdom was restored, which happened in the 1940s. They, they got full control over Jerusalem in the 1960s, and now we're waiting for this yet future ten-toed, iron-mixed-with-clay kingdom, some sort of a, a federation, and people speculate on what that's about. But anyway, so he talks about this statue, and then during the dream, there was this mountain, and out of this mountain came this huge round rock, this boulder, and this boulder was flung at this statue, and it knocked it down and pulverized the statue where all those elements became dust and the wind came and blew the dust away. Those kingdoms were all gone. And then that stone, that round stone, became a mountain and filled the earth, a mountain that grew and grew and filled the earth, which represents God's kingdom. But anyway, he tells them all this stuff. And Nebuchadnezzar, he's blown away because Daniel told him the dream that he hasn't told anybody. And so he's freaking out, and this is what happens. If we will simply remember that God's in control and obey God over man, even if we have to defy those in authority, even if we have to defy our culture, we, we can do that if we just trust him. And if we do these things, if we obey him and trust him, remember that he's in control, God will use us to impact a culture. And that's exactly what happened to Daniel. And we see that in the king's response. Check it out. Chapter 2, verse 46. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face and did homage to Daniel and gave orders to present him an offering and fragrant incense. And the king answered Daniel and said, Surely your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries since you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts, and he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and the chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. And Daniel made a request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the, the administration of the province of Babylon while Daniel was at the king's court. So Daniel doesn't forget his friends. But here, the next thing that happens, boom. Daniel's running the whole show. He's over all the wise men. Elevated position, he brings his three friends with him. They're, and, and now they're in a position where they can not only impact the king, but they can impact the entire nation. Same thing Joseph did. That's how God wants to use us. If we remember God's in control, if we understand that God knows what he's doing, and we should obey him, put his laws first... If we would just trust him, God will use us to impact our culture, our family, our friends, the people we work with, go to school with. We can impact all those if we just keep God first in our life and trust him. That's what God wants for us. And that's what needs to guide us no matter what we face in life. In a changing world, 
changing circumstances. We never know what's going to happen next. Sometimes it's chaos. Sometimes it's mundane. But I got to tell you something. A lot of times God brings upheaval in our lives because when we're not experiencing a crisis, we tend to ignore God. And then we wonder, why would God allow something bad to happen in our lives? You see, when bad things, when our life gets chaotic, that's when we tend to turn to God. We may turn to, some people turn to him in a rage. Why, God? Why would you do this? Or some people, maybe more people turn to God in desperation. That's what I do. You know, God, help me. I need help. You know, what's going on? Well, maybe God's allowing something in our lives because otherwise, 90% of the time, we're just ignoring God in our life. God uses chaos to draw us to him. And, for, and if he does that, if that's why he's do, doing it, and that's what we do, well, then that's a good thing. Because we should be acknowledging God in every area of our life, no matter what's happening in our life. That's always the best for us. And if we obey him and we trust him, God will use us to impact the world. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your goodness and we thank you for your love and we thank you that you are a God that's in completely con in control and that in your sovereign plan, you allow bad things to happen for a time. And even those bad things, even the bad things that happened to us, God, we know that you could use them to make us better, to draw us closer to you, to help us to grow as a believer. And we thank you for that. God, help us to be who you want us to be. Help us to obey and trust. And God, help us to change the world around us. In Christ's name, amen. Let's stand together.